Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My newest guest is Ted Suder. He recently left Google after more than 20 years where he was head of industry retail. Ted Suder is a former vice chair and advisor to the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce and a board director at 1871, the top-rated technology incubator in the world. We talk about the future of computing, artificial intelligence, regulation, and many other topics. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Every day I learn something new, and today will be no different and yet even more educational. My guest has spent more than 20 years with Google, a business and brand name that did not exist 20 years ago, but is now one of the best-known brand names in the world and part of the Oxford and Webster's lexicon. Quite an accolade. Just as you could or can hoover something up, a word from a previous generation of inventions, so we now Google something rather than look something up. Ted Suda is my guest. He's just left Google, where he was head of industry retail. He's a former vice chair and advisor to the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce and a board director at 1871, the top-rated technology incubator in the world. And he will tell us about what he's doing now as we chat. And we're sitting here together in the relaxed comfort of Geneva's Mandarin Oriental Hotel, where he's just addressed members and guests of the British Swiss Chamber of Commerce. Ted Suda, welcome to Geneva. Welcome to the McKay interview. Michael, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be back in Geneva. Great to have you in front of the microphone. Ted, I'm still an aging novice in this brand new world of tech, so I look to you to be gentle and understanding with me if my questions fall short of the high bar which your 20 years at Google must have set. Here's my first question. If the Model T Ford of 1908 was the most influential car of the 20th century, compare the automobile timeline with the data and IT timelines, and tell me where Google is now on the comparable timeline in the 21st century. Well, Michael, thank you for having me, and I love this topic. One, because it is what I've been living for the past 20 years at Google and 25 in the space overall. But one, because it's a topic that's impacting every business, every nonprofit, schools, governments, everyone around the world, and it's unfolding in real time. And I find that to be super exciting. So to answer your question, where are we in the, life's, the lifeline of an automobile? I still think we're very, very early days. Google might be one of the best timed businesses ever. And I say that because technology has been evolving very, very quickly. But you got to remember back that the internet, the commercial internet as we know it today, really wasn't available to the public until around 1992, 1993. Before that, it was more research universities, governments, etc. When the public internet opened up in the 1990s, all of a sudden there was this new world available to everyone. When our founders Larry and Sergey started the company in, from a dorm room in 1998, they had grand visions for how to do a better job of organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful. So they started to think about how do websites relate to each other? How do links relate to each other? What deems something to be important? And that was really a, a, a monumental shift in how the web was organized. And you got to remember at the time when Google was founded, there were many other search engines out there that some continue to this day. But did the world really need a better search engine or a, another search engine? Well, they found a way. 
But then you got to fast forward a number of years where they came out with not only a better search engine, but then they came out with a better Gmail email service. Then mobile started to become a thing, and that was a revolution that they hit. You got to remember then that video on the web was very nascent until YouTube came around and they purchased YouTube. That was a whole new way to advertise, to consume entertainment, et cetera. And then we got into things like social, cloud computing, and the next big bet for the company is really around artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence very possibly might be the most important discovery by man right up there with fire. So when we're thinking about the future of Google as a company, it's really based on the power of artificial intelligence, where that's going to be able to take not only advertisers and marketers, but take the public at large and to create new services that will help to solve mathematical problems that have been unsolvable until now. It'll be able to create medical discoveries that will impact lives around the world. So we're really, really just early days on everything having to do with computing and technology and moving forward, artificial intelligence is going to be at its core. Well, it's, it's quite uh, fascinating to see the developments and the, to me, sophistication of where we are now. And then here you say we're actually, Michael, right at the beginning mm -hmm. still, relatively speaking. Yeah. So in a way, my second question follows on from that, Ted. You were at Google for more than 20 years. I mean, just tell me again, what year did you start at the company? October, October 1st, 2001. 2001. So over those years, Ted, what surprised you most about the developments in the company and in the wider competitive marketplace? What things really took you by surprise in the way things have developed over that long period of time, 20-odd years? Well, it's a great question because I, I, I'm trying to reflect back on what I felt was an amazing career, an incredible experience, and I feel really lucky to be, to have been a part of what I think is one of the best business stories of all time. But what really surprised me was how forward-thinking the founders were and how flexible the organization was in letting people try things, letting people fail or succeed, and then taking those best ideas and best practices and moving them into the next product or service. The company was really, really tolerant, and that's where some of our best ideas really came to be. So there's some best lessons to be learned there for other organizations around the world. It's about moving quickly. It's about fast decision making. It's about creating a culture where people are willing to try new things that may or may not work, learn from it, and move on quickly. And that's really at the core of what the tech community is about overall. But the big knowledge that everybody needs to be thinking about moving forward is that we're all in the tech business now. And the pandemic really shone a light on that. Now that's, not, that's not just an expression, a rather poetic expression. When you say we're all in the tech business, um, specifically, how, what do you mean when you say that? That whether we like it or not, we're being dragged into it uh, because that's the way the world is moving or it's an aspiration of a company like Google that we're all in the tech business. I don't quite follow you. Michael, you are in the tech business. Okay. You are a tech entrepreneur and you don't even know it. <laughs> Try and convince me. Here we are sitting in the <laughs> I'm a dinosaur. No, you are on the cutting edge, cutting edge of podcasting. And, I'm, and I, I, I think it's fun to joke about a little bit, but actually I'm serious. So here we are in this beautiful space with these two high-tech microphones and this fancy little recording device in front of us that you will then take this piece of content, you will modify it, do some editing, polish it up, 
make my voice sound amazing for radio. And then you will go and distribute it on the web. You will do social media posts about it so people are Podcast aware of this. And all those sorts of things. You'll yeah. send it to forums, yeah. you'll send it to people, you'll email it to friends, text it, all of those sorts of things. You're creating digital content, you're distributing it on digital channels, and it is being consumed by the public on digital devices. You run a tech business. I see what you mean. And I think that's really exciting for all of us because the barrier to entry is so low. All you need are a couple microphones, a little recorder, and a laptop, and you're on your way. So it's something that everybody can look to you as like, wow, I can be Michael one day too. All I need are a couple pieces of uh, technology, a great voice, and some thought, and we're good to go. Okay. My next question is a bit different, Ted. It's a, main, a, a, a sort of combination of culture and what you were just saying about tech. I read somewhere that Google's stated mission, and I quote, is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. My question to you is, with, what with all your knowledge of the company, does that really mean? And is it not a statement of overreach or even bombast or arrogance? <laughs> so we used to joke early on that when Larry and Sergey, who are really two once-in-a-lifetime visionaries, when they talked about the world's information, they meant the world's information, and we would joke, I mean, this was like 2002, 2003. We joked that the brain implant was coming so that they could index all of our thoughts. Well, you joked about that. We joked about that. But now there's Neuralink by Elon Musk that isn't quite doing that, but it's the brain implant. It is having an uh, it's, it's, it's fusing hardware and the software of our, of our tissues and our minds. So they were big thinkers, and, and though it was never a stated goal to download our brains, uh, I think they probably may have considered that. And I think that is the type of, I wouldn't call it arrogance, but I would call it big picture thinking that these two and, and other founders have had, that technology is a frontier that enables us to think as big as we possibly can. And that should be inspiring for all of us. And take it and apply it to our own situation and go big. This is the time that technology enables you to do that. Okay, well, in a way, my next question again follows on from that. There's no doubt that humankind has benefited from the access to information and knowledge thanks to Google's energy imagination and investment, but can it become too big and powerful, Ted? Can the market keep it in check or does it require stricter and stricter regulation? Well, in, there's the regulation piece of it that governments around the world feel a need to regulate businesses that run within their borders or need to adhere to the laws that are laid out in their country. I understand all of that, and I think that's fine. Almost more importantly, the public has the say in what's relevant and what's worthwhile and what is useful or not. Eric Schmidt, our, our CEO early on, used to say that we're just one click away from people not using us anymore. So it was Google's responsibility and others to make sure that they're providing a product that was easy to use, that returned relevant information, that wasn't filled with spam or, or overly packed with advertising. So people found it to be useful. And the minute companies lose the trust of their customer, 
the customers are gone. So ultimately, the customers are going to vote with their fingers. And Google did a really good job of thinking customer first, thinking user first, and providing an experience that many people still today find to be super relevant. Now, on the flip side, there is the elephant in the room. I talk to people all the time saying that they have decamped to another search engine that is named after a, 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 an animal that likes to swim and fly. <laughs> yes. That's great. I wouldn't I, say it either. Yeah. People, are, people are, are able to go where they feel comfortable to get the answers that they feel are truthful and maybe feel are privacy sake. And everybody needs to know that privacy is job number one, not only for Google, but for everyone else. And so as long as the companies continue to uphold the promise of what the brand means, and continue to be easy to use and are thoughtful, then I'm willing to bet that the public will follow. But only time will tell. I can accept that answer. That's, that's a good answer, Ted. And my guest today is uh, Ted Sudo, who's spent more than 20 years with Google and has uh, fascinating stories to tell. Ted, how can Google be an even greater cause for good as the world seems to divide more brutally into illiberal and narrower focuses in knowledge and access to information. One thinks obviously of Russia and China and North Korea, but even large portions of your own countrymen and countrywomen in the United States, the great American democracy under Trump, appeared to outsiders, at least, as narrow and bigoted. Now, where does Google stand in pushing the boundaries of knowledge wider and wider? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, you named pretty much the three countries where Google doesn't have much of a presence. But that aside, Google has a huge responsibility, as does Twitter, as do some of the other big tech platforms out there. And that is to use their scale and their product and their information, I believe, for good and for the better of humanity. And some of them do an OK job of that. Some of them don't so much. The scale and reach of these companies is absolutely extraordinary. And so they do have a higher responsibility than a smaller, more regional organization. Being on the inside at, at, at these companies in the past, I've, I've seen them take re that responsibility seriously. I've never seen abuse or not wanting to do the right thing. And I think people should take solace in that. The responsibility of the tech platforms uh, does not go unnoticed by leadership, by the day-to-day -day people, by the advertisers, et cetera. So I could be a tad Pollyannish, but I believe that these companies can be forces for good. The, again, the scale and the reach is staggering. That said, it's important for them to be unbiased in the information that they are presenting. There is a fight against disinformation that is very real, that we're just, not we, that the industry is just trying to figure out using a mixture of humans and artificial intelligence and other tools. But it's, uh, it, disinformation is a, real, is a real challenge that will continue to plague many platforms for quite a while. But I have a belief that eventually there will be better solutions in place. I just hope that the public recognizes that it is important to get your information from a diversity of sources and to do their own research about what is real and what is not. 
and I think that's the best we can hope for today. Okay, Ted, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of crystal ball gazing, but I think you'd uh -oh. agree with me that it's pointless trying to look more than, say, five or ten years ahead. Predictions of too many experts have been off the mark and reassessed recently. But where do you see the most rapid degree of change, the most rapid degree of change coming in the world of data, its processing, its accessibility, and the intelligence, and I put that word in inverted commas, the intelligence of computers, supercomputers, and other machines that the ordinary man in the street might not even be able to comprehend. And can the change you have in mind be good for mankind? You just hinted that it could be. And give me some examples of that goodness. I, so you bring up a really interesting point about supercomputing power and access to the common man. The Smartphone, even the lowest end smartphone device that people have in their pockets is like a million times more powerful than the computer that put a man on the moon in, in 1969. So that alone, I think, is incredibly interesting and see how far we've come as a result of Moore's Law and where things will go in another 10 years, I think is really gonna be staggering. Not even getting into things like quantum computing, uh, et cetera. The, the future of computing is incredibly exciting because of the power, the speed, the, the capabilities, how cheap it is, how small it has gotten, and the capabilities to unlock some of the world's biggest secrets will be just absolutely staggering. So I think a lot of good is, gonna, is going to come out of that. The fastest growth area right now is really around the evolution of artificial intelligence. I know from my experience where we worked with retailers that were able to fully automate their ad programs on Google, and the improvement in ROI was just staggering in a fairly short amount of time. And so if we think the, about- Sorry, the improvement on return on investment. Sorry, I didn't quite hear yeah, you so you Yeah, so for a longest time with Google, you put in a dollar, you get back yeah. two. That's great. Now, with automation and the sophistication of these of the artificial intelligence and machine learning behind the advertising tools and platforms at Google and elsewhere, you put in a dollar, you can get back 10, you can get back 15, 20. It's, it, it's just this money printing machine, which is great for the advertisers because it enables them to do more with less. And there are many industries, whether it's retail or, or hospitality, travel, et cetera, that are under incredible duress as a result of the pandemic and other economic factors. So the more that we can, or the, I keep saying we, the more Google can help them be more efficient, get a better return, the better all of these industries will be. And take a step back even a little bit further. If you're, if you're Mary with a cupcake shop on the corner and you're using online digital platforms to advertise, you're using uh, online tools such as Slack for communication and bookkeeping tools, as these tools become cheaper, faster, more effective, that is only better for Mary and her cupcake business. Now, instead of spending money on infrastructure and software and things, she's spending money on hiring people from the neighborhood to, to cook more cupcakes. She's expanding to a second location across town. So the evolution in computing will ultimately be good for the common man and the common woman and the common business because it's going to be cheaper, faster, and easier. And when that happens, everybody wins. 
Ted, I guess it's bad form to ask a question to a guest when you think you know the answer. <laughs> so the question I had written down was if you have a dystopian view of the future, of big data, that is, big data, or are you an optimist? I sense you're an optimist, but just tell me and the listeners before we finish why you're an optimist on the future of uh, big data. So I attribute my optimistic attitude back to my late father who would always like to say it always works out in the end. And I really loved that, that joie de vie. And that has carried with me. Now, I also recognize that the world is a challenging, difficult, often dark place. And many times we find technology is at the center or at least a part of that. And I am under no disillusionment that there are challenges in the future that are rooted in technology that will have a profound impact on human lives. And I go immediately to the idea of disinformation and, and deep fakes, technology that is able to think that one person is saying and doing something when it actually is completely fake. And this is not a figment of imagination, no. this is actually happening. It's, the capabilities exist. We've seen crude examples of it here and there. What I'm assuming we will see at some point in the future is a deep fake event that will have real world consequences, whether that is something related to war, something related to, to you know, energy being cut. I, I think it's just an unlimited number of bad scenarios that the world needs to be aware of. And, and there's a million other scary bad things having to do with, with cybersecurity and privacy and all sorts of, of bad things that bad actors will bring to bear. And as a result of that, it is up to us as individuals to not fully rely on the big tech platforms. We need to be aware. We need to have real passwords. We need to think about the sites that we're accessing. We need to think about links that we click on. We need to be just doing a better job of managing our own online lives. Thinking about disinformation where who are you reading that you get your information from? What reporters? What news sources? What platforms? The world gets its news from Facebook. Is that a good thing? I don't know. But we need to be more thoughtful and intent driven on picking and choosing where we go, what we do, and how we understand things. And if we don't, then if something bad happens, we can't, we can't blame others. Okay, well that thoughtful exhortation, Ted, I just want to thank you for making time to talk to me, talk to me and to talk to the listeners. And uh, I wish you a safe trip back to Chicago. My guest has been Ted Suda, who's just finished more than 20 years with Google, and he's just visiting us in Geneva. Thank you again, Ted. Michael, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Can't wait to do it again. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you, and if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.